time for our bi-weekly visit with dylan murphy here we got a lot to discuss with him he just recently wrote a piece on the houston rockets switching for the athletic and how that'll perhaps enable them to match up with the warriors we also want to talk a, a little okc thunder what he's seeing with their offense and then we're also going to talk about how you can try to guard kevin durant in isolation he has uh, been tearing it up now for golden state of late with steph curry out going back to play a little more like he did in OKC so uh, a ton of other topics we can get to as well uh, but since we always kind of go in various directions I don't want to quite over promise in terms of where we're going to get uh, how you doing today Dylan doing good thanks for having me back absolutely well so let's uh, get started here with Oklahoma City they pulled out a 95-94 win against Denver on Monday but really have not looked good offensively uh, have been getting lucky in close games lately with Russell Westbrook starting to get a, a little bit more clutch brilliance summoning what we saw from him last year but David Locke did an analysis that we talked about on the show yesterday that basically Russ I think in the last nine minutes had 17 touches and made three passes and Paul George touched the ball once really down the stretch of that game so certainly troubling you know you wonder how sustainable that is going to be um but I'll just give you the floor here what are you seeing with OKC's offense so so far you know i mean right now i was looking at the numbers on synergy and so they rank uh 28th in half court offense in the nba uh transition they're more middle of the pack but so it's really the half court that's driving their uh you know frustration so far and and for me it just seems to look like that each of their stars is still stuck in the mode where they're the only star on the team so you know they all used to play with the mentality of you know when Melo was on the knicks and pg was on the pacers that it was up to them to score and if they couldn't create a shot they their team wasn't going to score at all and you know part part of that comes from just the personnel they're used to playing with um but you really look at the best offenses in the nba and it's not necessarily that they're running a ton of actions or have really creative sets it's more that their players try to make an attack of some sort and after one or two dribbles or a couple seconds they're not able to do anything they swing the ball on so you really you're getting through multiple pick and rolls or multiple isolations on one possession and eventually the defense is going to crack whereas on okc right now what I'm seeing is once one guy, one of their stars has the ball, it's just sort of, okay, now it's my turn. So it's really the your turn, my turn idea, but they're not cycling through the multiple isolations and pick and rolls that they could have with their star power. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. Um, and as uh, Russell Westbrook started off really poorly this year, he now has started playing a little bit better. He's actually up to 38% usage, which is close again to where uh, some of the highest seasons of all time last year he was at 41 percent mellow down to 23 percent george 25 percent but russ is the only one of those guys playing well right now in terms of his scoring um when if you are a coach looking at this and obviously you know you weren't dealing with some of the the egos and the power of stars like westbrook george and anthony but how can you get it across gently that hey you know we've got to play a little bit differently and you know what can you do from a coaching perspective or is it just really hey these players are just so intractable in the way that they're used to playing you know i don't think they're so intractable i think most stars when you reach that level of success in the nba yes it's about talent but it's also about your understanding of the game so you know almost every star in the nba is a very high iq player so i think if you explain to them and you can show them numbers or just on vi- on video you know there was a possession i was watching from the denver game where westbrook isolated and three guys stood still uh on the perimeter and you know while that's very common 
coming across the NBA, one thing that really stuck out to me was not one of them moved their feet once during the isolation to relocate on the three-point line. You know, sometimes you'll see a guy just kind of creep a little on, on the weak side, but there wasn't even any creeping. It was just three statues and one isolation. And so, you know, if you really just show that on film, multiple clips, you know, you talk about statistically, hey, look, we're, we're one of the worst half-court offenses in the league, so what we're doing right now isn't working. And if you can't get through to them that way, then, you know, you sort of have to generate the ball movement yourself as the coach where you're making them slow it down, you're making them run through sets all the time. But that takes away from the natural creativity of your players. Um, so, you know, you kind of have to find that balance of showing them the film, talking to them about the numbers, and then, you know, sort of as a coach, um, engineering some of that ball movement yourself. Russell Westbrook naturally gets a, a lot of the blame. He was blamed for the fact that Kevin Durant left and didn't want to play with him anymore. Uh, now the idea is that, oh, like these guys can't be effective playing with him. Well, when KD was there, he scored just fine. But uh, how much of this is, do you think it's Westbrook's uh, playing style uh, that has fed into their issues here? Or would you put the blame somewhere else? Um, I don't know if it's his playing style as much as it's the playing style that he's working his way out of from last year. It can be really hard as a player to shift gears that quickly. I mean, we've seen it with every team that's put stars together. They, they take time to figure out sort of what the right rhythm is for themselves. And I think OKC is unique in that they've, they have a situation where three guys are coming from situations where they were the only guy by a mile. Uh, and that, that mentality is really tough to break out of when you've been playing that one specific way for such a long time. So, you know, I don't, I don't think it's particularly Westbrook's fault. And another thing about Westbrook, which I have always admired, um, you can always criticize his decision making and taking too many shots and this or that, but he's always been a quick decision maker. You know, maybe he'll shoot the ball too quickly on a possession or be out of control to the rim, but everything he's doing is happening at a high rate of speed. So it's not like he's holding the ball for 15 seconds. He's trying to make moves and trying to use a pick and roll or trying to isolate in some way. You know, a lot of people criticize Melo because he'll catch the ball in the mid post area, turn, face, jab, hold it, look, jab, you know, seven seconds later and nothing has happened. But Westbrook really is sort of that guy who pushes the envelope with speed. And I think when harnessed the right way, that's almost the best way to use stars together. Yeah, because you, you get the defense on their heels that they can't load up. And obviously, uh, OKC is still pretty effective, in at least in terms of the frequency that they get out in transition. And Westbrook drives a lot of that. So there's a number of explanations that I can come up with. And I think it's some of these, uh, you can assign it all of it. So this will be an interesting piece here. You can, uh, you got to actually make a decision since you're in the media now. You know, you don't have that cushy coaching job <laughs> anymore. <laughs> I don't all right, so, anymore. <laughs> so why don't we assign a percentage to each of these potential reasons for why they have struggled? All right, so factor number one, just bad fit with the stars. Factor number two, just, you know, not really having the offensive system. Uh, number three, which we haven't discussed yet at all, is the limitations of the support players, you know, like a Robertson, a Grant, not being able to shoot, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then another one, which we haven't discussed yet either, is just, you know, these main guys maybe just haven't been as good this year you know and, and that's maybe it has nothing to do with their system or the fact that they don't fit well together it's just hey these guys aren't making the shots that we have come to expect them to make so how much would you what percentage to their struggles would you assign to each of those uh four factors there um in terms of offensive system i would say zero percent i don't really think that's sort of what's impacting here um in terms of a, a bad fit see i don't know if i'd characterize it as a bad fit i think you know fit is an issue but i think it's not that it's a bad fit it's just a new fit you know they all of them can shoot
shoot spot up threes. All of them can attack the rim. All of them can space. All of them can play out of the post. So the way they're sort of malleable offensively really can be beneficial. It's just they haven't figured out that way yet. Um, and what were the other two? Sorry, I'm, I'm forgetting right now. Uh, the the limitations of the support players, like a, a, you know a Robertson, a, a Grant, then you, you know guys like they're playing guys like a Brinus and Ferguson. Some as well. Brinus is okay offense player. Josh Hustis is playing. Patrick Patterson has not kind of been the same guy. So okay, so the new fit I'll say is probably seventy percent of it. Um, you know the support cast probably twenty percent if you're asking me, but I do think there's still a lot of talent in the support cast and and smart players, and you don't really need that much uh, creativity power from them uh, when you have three guys who can create shots for themselves and others. And I think also with the support cast, they're lifted up by sort of the positive energy uh, created by your stars when they're playing the right way. So when your stars aren't doing things in the way that maybe is beneficial for the whole team, it makes the support players look a lot worse. And then when they are doing things the right way, it makes them look a lot better. Um, you know, one of the things that makes LeBron so great is that he's always sort of playing the right way. So his support players always look amazing next to him. And I, so I think, you know, that that's sort of, it's tough to really put anything on them in that way. But again, you know, if you had Kyle Korver standing out there shooting threes versus, you know, a Josh Hustis, yeah, maybe you'd have a little bit more, you know, uh, success offensively. Um, and then the last one, sorry, I just, I talk so much that I can't remember what you say. What was the other one? <laughs> the, the main guy's not making shots. Right. Yeah. I think that's probably, you know, 10% of it, but I think more important than making shots is the type of shots you're generating, you know, made shots and missed shots. Um, players understand that, you know, sometimes a guy just can't put the ball in the hole for whatever reason, but what really drives coaches and teammates nuts is when a guy is taking really bad shots. I think that has way more yeah. of an impact on your team than whether the ball is going in or not. You know, you watch someone on film miss three wide open threes pg misses three wide open threes from the corner you know what is there to say there's nothing to say there other than hey we got to make that shot well obviously yeah. we got to make that shot you know so no one, no one really wastes too much time on that but the type of shots you're generating i'm sure when westbrook comes down and takes a 19 footer with 18 seconds left on the shot clock and pg hasn't even crossed half court he gets a little ticked off and so th- i think that sort of is more of a driver as well so i i think we, we see it a little differently and i'll do i'll do my own exercise in a second but it sounds to me like you think that they're going to get better i mean definitely you look at earlier in the year when they were blowing guy blowing teams out and then blowing leads in the second half and fourth quarter um clearly they they know a way to play well and play together it's just they they revert to their bad habits a little more than you'd like and, and it hurts them but i do think that they will figure it out more consistently um i think they have figured it out in some respects it's just that they can't keep it together all the time but i'm not I'm not so worried about them in terms of the long run. Yeah, so I I do feel differently, and I, I think that all of those factors that I came up with, uh, I think are issues. I mean, I, I think in terms of you know, and, and this isn't necessarily an indictment of what the coaching staff is telling them, uh, because you know you, we don't know what that is. And Billy Donovan and in his pressers has been harping quite a bit on how they need to move the ball, but the fact of the matter is that they're not doing that, and so it's difficult to say you know how much of that is you know bad 
fit and how much is is lack of ball movement within the offense um i still think that they could be successful without moving the ball that much i mean when they had kd there and kd is a much better offensive player than mellow or george ever have been but nonetheless when they had him there they were still an excellent offensive team despite the fact that they annually ranked near the bottom of the league in passes so i i would say you know in terms of the bad fit the things that i really don't like is that other than george like anthony and westbrook just never move off the ball i mean you touched on that a, a little bit but i would say you know maybe 20 percent bad fit 20 percent lack of ball movement and then uh in terms of the limitations of the support players i i think that's a bigger issue than you do i mean patterson is starting to shoot a little more starting to play a little better but he's got you know 10 percent usage uh and ferguson who they've been forced to play he's not really ready yet houston you don't have to guard robertson can cut a little bit you know he had that play against uh philly to win the game but generally a guy who you know is you're not guarding for vast portions of the game and maybe he'll make you pay four or five times but the other uh you know 70 possessions that he's in there on offense you're not guarding him so they can kind of muck things up um so i would say maybe that's like 25 percent. and then let's see how much is left there yeah so then i would say 35 percent is the main guy is just not making shots now whether that's going to continue or not i mean i do think that george who's a great mid-range shooter he's shooting 30 percent for mid-range westbrook is not a great mid-range shooter but he was a, a reasonable one he's shooting 30 percent for mid-range so even if they just continue getting these same shots i expect them to make them a little bit better um mellow i think might be like kind of getting closer to being done and we've seen some players like this where you know they're aging but they still have this huge role and so even though they're below average efficiency maybe you could compare it to Dwayne wade's last year in miami you know they still have the star power they still have a high usage they're below average efficiency but then if you get them into a context where they're not the lead dog they can struggle a little bit more so i i am worried and westbrook i think you know at 29 is slowing down a little bit as well given how reliant he is on athleticism but I, I i do think and part of the reason i'm starting to get a little bit lower on their offense is because i do think you know those are a lot of different problems right and so fixing all of those i think you can do that incrementally but you know it, it wouldn't surprise if you wanted me to predict their offensive efficiency from here on out I, I wouldn't say that they'll be a top 10 unit and where this team wants to go if they're not going to be a top 10 offensive unit uh, they're not going to get you know one thing i will say about their uh support guys is when you're making those contract decisions outside out of your stars most of the time your bench guys are either an offensive player or a defensive player in some respect yeah. right you're not you're not really getting the two-way guy off the bench for the most part and they've clearly made the decision that they're focusing on bringing up guys with the defensive standpoint from their bench so a Josh Eustis you know an Andre Robertson I know he's starting but the support in terms of the support players a Jeremy Grant all these guys are really versatile and good defenders and so for me the calculus there is is pretty smart in saying that we're going to get our three stars and our offense is going to be good maybe it's not going to be elite but we'll be good enough and we'll be really really strong defensively so even if our offense does struggle initially our defense can sort of carry the load for a while and that's definitely what's happening right now all right that's the good stuff on okc we'll be right back with more talk a little bit about the houston rockets and their defensive improvement this year after this i want to tell you about a new sponsor master class and i'm really excited about them because they want me to 
to tell you about their first basketball class shooting taught by none other than Stephen Curry. It's four hours of movie quality video lessons. They give you spreadsheets to do drills, help to track your shooting in the exact same way that Steph does for his shooting practice. I haven't watched the whole thing yet. I just watched the first two videos, but I've already learned a bunch of interesting stuff from it about shooting mechanics. And I'm looking forward to watching the rest because he gets into all types of stuff, ball handling, specific drills to improve that, analyzing NBA game footage to improve basketball IQ, footwork curling, popping and fading off of screens, creating space and beating defenders. This would make an amazing gift for the basketball player NBA junkie in your life. And I was already really enjoying it over just the first video and they've got worksheets. It's really like an actual class that can help you get a lot better at shooting the same way that Steph Curry did. And it's not just Steph Curry is doing masterclass. They produce online classes taught by the best in the world. And with their new all access pass, you can unlock every class from over 30 masters. The other one that I'm really fired up to watch is investigative journalism with uh, none other than Bob Woodward. And that's something I've never had any kind of formal journalistic training. So I'm looking forward to learning about that. There are like five or six just master cooking classes uh, as well. And the way to get started, of course, is with that slash cap space URL, you can get Stefan's Masterclass or the All Access Pass at masterclass.com slash cap space. Easy to remember that slash cap space URL because we talk about cap space all the time in the program. Learn from the best in the world at masterclass.com slash cap space, masterclass.com slash cap space. So you wrote a piece for uh, the Athletic SF about Houston and how they might guard the Golden State Warriors. I've long maintained that the only way you can expect to guard the Warriors decently is by switching everything. The one team that's had a, had a little bit of success doing that without switching everything was Boston when they had Avery Bradley. But uh, I, I think you really, because otherwise you're just going to give up too many open three-pointers. Guarding them in conventional pick-and-roll defense is just too difficult when it's Steph Curry. So Houston has started switching a lot. And despite the reputation of a guy like Ryan Anderson, who's really the, the, the guy that everyone likes to focus in on, and Harden as well, they've been extremely effective with these switching tactics. Yeah, it's it, so the switch comes down right to two ends. The first end is your guard handling the big and the post. But you know, on that front, teams really don't throw it into the post to score as much anymore. It's more you get that mid post isolation for a great score, or you throw it into the block and you get a little split action going. You know, to get your cutters open for layups or three point shots. And and so the other end of that then is your your uh, your bigs guarding guards on the perimeter. So Houston, when they throw it down to the block, they have three really strong and physical guards who don't give up a lot of space in terms of getting back down in the post. Eric Gordon, you know, really strong player physically. James Harden is very strong, and I think we saw last year in the playoffs with the way he guarded LaMarcus Aldridge, you know, he can handle himself down there. Um, And then P.J. Tucker as well, very physical, strong player. So you've got you sort of in your wings, these guys who, even if they're giving up... Chris Paul, too, is another guy who really, he, he is, I mean, we've seen him guard Kevin Durant before in the playoffs for decent stretches and be effective exactly yeah his his hands are so quick too that um, when you bring the ball down low you're really asking to get it stripped so that's the thing that uh, players worry about when Paul is guarding them so they sort of have that end of it the post-ups figured out and then on the other end you know this is the more obvious sort of mismatch where you have a Ryan Anderson or a Clint Capella uh, 
guarding a, a Steph Curry or a Kevin Durant out on the perimeter and you say, oh, he's toast. So the in the traditional way you guard as a big is you take maybe two or three steps off. You carry one hand high. So you'll hear a coach always yell, carry a hand, carry a hand. And the idea being you're contesting the shot before it comes up. So uh, the ball handler sees a contest early and knows that if he shoots the ball, there's going to be a high hand in his face. But the problem with that is, is you're disconnected from the ball handler. So really he has room to wiggle with the ball and dance with it and get you moving laterally, which for a big is sort of the toughest way to guard when you have to shift laterally. Um, if, a, if a guard just yeah. dribbles. And when you have to change direction as well, I think, for, exactly. for these slow guys, right? If you get going one way and then they can cross you over, you know, that's when you're really dead because there's just, it's basically just becoming a, a contest of athleticism of who can change direction the fastest and, and the big is going to lose that. Exactly. And when the guard just drives straight to the rim, most of the time the big has length enough length to still bother the shot or just completely block it from behind. So what you notice the Rockets do, and Anderson is really good at this, and Capella isn't quite as laterally quick as Anderson, but still does a pretty good job of it. Basically, he just goes into uh, the chest of the ball handler with a hand. So they're always maintaining contact on the ball handler, with the idea being it sort of grounds you in space. You can always feel which direction they're going, and you're not being reactive. And when you're being aggressive like that and creating contact, it makes it easier for you to sort of dictate where the ball is going to go. And even if the ball handler, let's say a Curry or Durant, who's, you know, they're both very good ball in their hands, they can shift laterally quickly. Um, If they do that shift quickly, you're just ready to react to it because you feel it with your hand, their jersey shifting. Whereas if you're giving up that space, you're sort of, your feet have to be more jumpy and ready to move and slide. Whereas if you're close, it sort of shortens the distance that your feet have to move. And so Anderson, you'll notice, really oversells against Curry and Durant when they're on the perimeter. The idea being he's going to force them to drive A, but B, he's also giving himself a chance to slide his feet. And he's done a really nice job both against them and, and a bunch of other matchups. And, and Houston overall, they're just switching one through five and saying, you know what, you take our bigs one-on-one and we think the math is going to be in our favor because even if you score, let's say 50% of the time, most of it's going to be on twos. And then we're just going to come down to the other end and bang threes and you're going to lose. Yeah. And I guess that's a big part of it, right? Is like Ryan Anderson doesn't have to lock them down because with he and Gordon on the floor, they're standing four steps behind the three-point line and then they have these other great creators and they're nearly impossible to guard. So I I see that. I also like the idea of pressing up a little bit because then at least you can tell your help defenders where the guy is going to go and they can anticipate. I mean, so much of defense is just having in your head what you need to do before you have to do it. And just instead of having to react that way to just be like, okay, like, you know, in three seconds, I'm going to start moving here. If this happens to just have that in your head beforehand as a defender, as opposed to just having to react to something that surprises you, just that split second really mentally, maybe even more than it is physically, uh, is very important. Yeah, LaMarcus Aldridge is actually another random player who's very good at this. He So he doesn't usually maintain that level of contact that uh, Capella yeah. and Anderson do, but he really shifts his feet so far in one direction that he's basically opening the gate to the baseline side, and that sort of fills into the no-middle principle that drives every NBA defense. So he's giving up the drive to the baseline side, knowing that the trap-the-box man, who's basically the main defensive helper, is going to come over and help him, and that's going to put San Antonio in their regular defensive rotations that everyone can handle. And so, you know, there are a couple different ways that you can guard those switch isolation, but Houston really does a nice job with it, and they they use the math, as always, to their advantage. Yeah, and I do think that Golden State will get it together in terms of being able to beat Houston if they are going to have Anderson on the floor. He, 
he's a lot better i think that first matchup of the season golden state was really not locked in at all mentally we saw it in on defense too with how they failed to guard the small small pick and rolls involving curry and harden it and ended up getting killed on those so i i think that they curry durant like i trust them to beat anderson if it comes down to it and some of the plays you highlighted which you know we appreciated and anderson did a good job on that but you know golden state had like four guys all standing like right next to each other on one side of the floor on some of those plays and also like you know curry just didn't do the greatest job like when he gets inside the arc or he'll try and attack from the wing which wasn't in the clips that you showed but he'll do that too it it doesn't work as well so i do think that houston if anderson is on the floor and harden is on the floor are going to struggle to guard and part of the reason that they have to switch everything too is because james harden is just not going to get through a screen ever and so you just have to switch because otherwise you're just gonna whoever he's guarding is just gonna get wide open so uh that's and for golden state in particular they have some but i like that houston switching everything too because i think that's just you need practice at that system against golden state and to be as connected as possible and not give up you know backdoor layups when you miscommunicate on the switch and stuff like that well one thing i will say though um even you know people might say that steph curry well he can generate a better shot there just maybe in that one instance he didn't he didn't do that and he settled for a step back three that was heavily contested well that's the thing about mismatch isolations is that the ball handler often loses the mental battle there where he thinks oh well, i have a big on me so i should be able to to roast him and well he's gonna st- stay off me so i should really take this contested three because i'll have a little bit of room and so what ends up happening is that pretty often even in a mismatch the ball handler settles for a contested jumper and that's exactly what the defense sure. wants i mean if you were looking at any other possession in a game and you just had a regular guard guarding curry and he took a step back three that you contested pretty well you would say to yourself if they took that shot a hundred times throughout the game we would win now obviously if curry is in one of his modes where he's just ma- making everything that might yeah. be so much depends but... on just which steph curry it is i mean the 2015 right. 16 curry you know you couldn't guard him with the pig like he would just but, he would just hit that three in the guy's face every time but yeah, he's it, not that same guy anymore i mean i think you know the, that part of him might still be in there but even in that 15 16 steph curry what else can you ask for as a defense other than to force a guy to take a really heavily contested three-point shot you know maybe he'll make five out of six but to ask him to sustain that you know over 15 shots over 20 shots is is pretty unrealistic i think and so almost every nba defense is willing to play the numbers on that and say fine if you're going to beat us with step back threes we don't think you can do that for seven straight games even even if it's steph curry as long as we're contesting it at a really high level all right the next thing we wanted to talk about here kevin durant is playing pretty well for the warriors we don't have to spend as much time on this but when he gets the ball in an isolation which they're starting to do a lot more now with curry out as a coach what are you looking at as far as like what are you telling your guy before the game of like all right this is what you need to do when you get kd in an iso well the first thing I'm, i'm telling my guy is everything has to start before the catch so wherever he's catching the ball we're going to push him out five feet farther than where he wants to catch it so if he's looking for and and he's susceptible to that too right because the only advantage a defender has on kevin durant is physical strength if you have someone who has that strength but that's the only possible advantage you can have over him it's nearly impossible to contest his shot as long as he gets a little bit of room whether it's you know on a fadeaway or just a little dribble move in three you really can't contest it you're not even in his line of sight so instead of relying on that my my theory would be well let's just be as physical as possible with him away from the ball and really try to frustrate him throughout the game you know you saw 
Cleveland do that in the first finals matchup between Cleveland and Golden State, where Iman Shumpert and Delhi they were really getting into Curry's shorts and just, you know, really pissing him off when he didn't have the ball. And that, that can sort of make a guy work less hard to get open and then maybe settle for bad shots. So you have to win the, the physical battle away from the ball. So then when he does catch the ball, maybe you can goad him into taking some some not great shots. But if he does catch it in an isolation, I'm just saying you got to crowd his space again and be physical with him. We want him to put the ball on the floor. We don't want him to just be able to dance with it with some room and pull up in our face because he's way too good a shooter. And we're going to trust our help to contest him at the rim. Does that mean we're going to give up some layups and some dunks and maybe some easy shots in the paint? Probably. But he's going to be working his, his butt off to get shots. And we're not going to give him anything clean and every, anything easy. And he's going to be in a you know a full sweat and tired by the fourth quarter. So when he does feel like he wants to settle for a jumper, he's he's not going to have the legs to make it. And that's sort of how I would, I would handle it. The two things that pop out to me about guarding KD, he's much more comfortable going to his left on the move. And as a guy who's kind of brings the ball up on the left side of his body, a much less extreme version of, of what Lonzo Ball does. But, uh, you know, he's kind of a left eye dominant guy. He's done an amazing job of rounding out his jump shot so he can make it going to his right. Like the, none of, against none of these guys, like these are ways to try and tilt the percentages in your favor, like 5% on every play. You know, you're not going to say, hey, we're going to stop guys. So number one, I would say, you know, I, I totally agree. Get into him. Like you got to make him put it on the floor at least once. And if you do that, I think you actually want to make him go right. And if because number one, uh, you everyone's going to know where he's going. Number two, you know, you can get some help there. And he's also just a little bit less comfortable pulling up off the dribble going to his right. And then I also think you just, you got to get into him uh, because especially if he's got a live dribble out top, you know, it's one thing if he's doing a wing ISO, I think then in particular, you know, you probably want to try and force him right. But if he's got it up top, you really got to get into him because he doesn't have like, you know, the, the quickest handle and, you know, you can either knock the ball away from him or make him uncomfortable but if you give him space then he's got this long looping crossover and with those long strides he can cover more ground than you can so if he gets you going one way and then you he has enough space to cross over in front of you like you're going to be dead that's the exact move that he made to beat Lonzo Ball in uh that Lakers game and he does that all the time that's probably his best dribble move so th- those are the thoughts that I would have but obviously all of this stuff is you know if you can even execute what we're talking about 50% of the time you're probably doing pretty well against a great score like that yeah and against most players i would agree with you that you want to you know slightly shade them in one direction or the other depending on what their you know preferences are but the problem with durant and this is sort of be my counter to the idea that you're shading is that he's so long that if you give him a quarter of a step or even if you get you stay on him and you're mostly in front of him that he can just reach over you and shoot to lay the ball in or get an easy touch uh touch finish of some kind so i would actually say play him straight up and really yeah. try to cut him off laterally uh, that way as opposed to sort of slightly opening the gate because I think he's he's too long and that he can take advantage of that room so better to make him create that room with the dribble than to just sort of give it to him yeah uh, that's certainly a way of looking at it too I mean and for me ideally what you'd want to be able to do is okay we're forcing him right but then I'm going to try to react and get back to to cut him off uh, to get into the room but that if you're giving him that lane it it could be difficult or maybe you've got help but I mean to me the shot that you want to force as best you can is pull up jump shot going to his right um to the extent that that you can do that but you know it's not like he can't hit that shot as well right. so it's and again that's easier said than done because if you're forcing him to his right like you said he could get to the rim and not necessarily you know because i mean that's true for a lot of players right like left hand shoot you know the pull up right hand get all the way to the rim that's what they want to do but if you force him right then 
you know, then it's easier for them to get all the right. Yeah, it's you know, it's really tough. And, and the other thing is, he's seen every type of defense on oh, him, yeah. so he he's built into his arsenal. Okay, you're guarding me this way, I know how to handle it. And so <laughs> that's the other thing when you get a guy who's been in the league ten years and is still at this level, it makes him that much harder to guard. Well, so in the vein of, of, of these scouting reports, one thing that I asked you to do was uh, dig through the Dylan Murphy archives, and we'll leave names out of it. But I think it'd just be interesting for our listeners to know, you know what is on a scouting port like what, what are you how much information do guys get what are they required to do so what i wanted to do here and you've got it in front of me i haven't seen it but is to just read me someone like if not maybe not the whole thing but however much you want to read me of an old scouting report that you did and maybe we can talk about what, what some of that stuff means so basically the the first page of the scout um you're putting on your your big stuff so if the guys never flip the page on their scouting report at least they're getting something <laughs> out of it how um, often does that happen do you think uh pretty often i'd say um also <laughs> a lot of times the guys know the other guys so there's really not yeah. much new stuff you can say yeah uh so the first page really just has that that big stuff so we'll, we'll have at the top our matchups um with our starters and their projected starters and that obviously can change um you know i'll write a scouting report a couple days in advance but there might be an injury or they the night before somebody else started so you kind of have to be on top of that and then um the first section we had was offensive keys so whatever basically we think that would be advantageous to us to attack uh their defense so you know on this one i'm looking at we have written uh controlled transition breaks we don't want to get in a track meet uh zone offense because the team we played ran some zone occasionally so runner gap and kick uh runner was the name of our zone play uh gap and kick set an initial ball screen swing the ball and attack the holes don't pass it around uh get the ball through hands uh they have excellent on-ball defenders and we won't win in isolation um change sides of the floor we had 44 points on 11 assists in our best quarter against them um, so that's sort of offensive stuff then defensive keys will have all our coverages so for this one uh this game was pretty complex in terms of how we guarded pick and roll um i don't want to give all the names but you know player a is an over we were in a drop uh in our coverage in the middle and a, a blue on the sides which is also known as an ice or a push or down i've heard white all sorts of colors so there's really uh, that can be basically the idea is for that as you're just keeping the ball out of the middle of the floor on pick and roll but so yeah player a so, is so you're saying so are you having like every player if this guy is in a pick and roll this is what our coverage is going to be it, it's uh, going to be separate for all those or, or at least their main guys so usually you have your default pick and roll coverage and if you don't say anything that's you're just in your regular whatever your regular coverage is and this is mm-hmm. um so this is if there's someone who we need to you know specify um so for instance on this one we have player a is an over um when pl- player b is a screener we're switching and everyone else is an under so you know in this game we had to sort of uh, talk it through with everybody and not just say okay we're doing our regular drop plus over you know only one guy we're going over everyone else we're going under and then this one pick and pop shooter we're going to switch everything um then it says blue when possible so you know a big thing when you're trying to you know blue side pick and rolls or ice side pick and rolls is you want to make sure that the call is early and that the on-ball guard can force the ball uh, to the baseline side. Otherwise, you 
have the big running towards the sideline to blue it, and you'll have the guard can't keep it on the sideline, and the on-ball on guard will get stuck, and the ball handler will get middle, and the big will be on the wrong side. So blue when possible. Um, one thing, uh, Sean Rooks, who I worked with uh, in D-League Select, um, this was a couple years before he passed away, but you know I really loved what he always used to stay, say. He would just yell, early, loud, continuous, early, loud, continuous, all the time to the bigs, just so that they were they knew to you know you always be yelling blue 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 you know as loud as possible as early as possible for the guards so they knew what to do um and then dho's so dribble handoffs equals let me through so basically what that means is that it's basically an under the idea being on a dribble handoff the guy who's receiving the handoff is usually going away from the basket so we were okay with going under it because his momentum is carrying him the wrong way so it's a tough sort of uh just immediate shot once he gets the handoff um and then switch like size bigs stay with the ball until the ball handler gets rid of so that's sort of our pick and roll and then there's a bunch more things um, so all that's just yeah. the first page of the scout yeah well that's a yeah. we can we can elaborate on this maybe next time as well but that was interesting and then i you know even just individual scouting reports that you give to players about their matchups that's something that we'd be interested in as well uh let's do a quick read here and then uh we'll get back talk a little bit more uh about the ice pick and roll coverage or blue or all the other colors that it's called but basically keeping guys out of the middle uh, on pick and rolls so uh we'll be right back with dylan after this one of the best christmas gifts out there is tickets to a sporting event research shows that sometimes something experiential is worth more than an actual physical gift in terms of our happiness and the best place to get those tickets is SeatGeek. holiday shopping is such a pain but SeatGeek can get your gift because it saves you time and it saves you money it saves you time because it aggregates ticket selling sites together so you don't have that fomo that you didn't go to the ninth site and you're missing out on some great price that's just around the corner at some obscure ticket broker and then it also saves you money by ranking every ticket based on value so you go in there look in the area you want to sit in that's what i did for the bucks wizards game last month that i took my fiance to ended up getting a great deal like a little over 100 bucks for fourth row tickets uh, on the sideline parallel with the basket and i just looked at the section i wanted to sit in saw that big green dot indicating a great value clicked on it a couple minutes later I, i'm out with my tickets so it's really it used to be a 20 minute process to try and find tickets now you can get it done in like two minutes the way to get started with SeatGeek use that familiar cap space code to get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase if you are a new user that's the cap space code and the SeatGeek app get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase so your other piece recently that you wrote on the basketball dictionary it was about icing the pick and roll and so just for readers who may not be or listeners I should say I always say readers for some reason uh, listeners who are not as familiar with what that is can you just give us the 15 second overview of what the general concept so every nba defense has the goal of keeping the ball out of the paint or out of the middle and so icing a pick and roll does that so instead of allowing the ball handler to get over the screen because the screen is usually trying to pin the on-ball defender towards the sideline uh, the on-ball defender shifts his body so his butt is facing the middle of the floor and he makes the ball handler uh, sort of dribble down towards the corner and the idea there is again the ball staying out of the middle and so that's really you'll see probably 98% of teams. I mean, I haven't checked every team, but I'd be willing to bet that every single team will ice a side pick and roll when they can. And now, you know, that the advantage there is that not only do you keep the ball in the corner, but when the ball handler looks to get rid of it, now he's got three guys on the weak side, which are virtually impossible passes. And the roller can't really roll because he's rolling into all the help that's loaded to the strong side. So it forces sort of a short roll or a pop. So there's really a big advantage to icing pick and rolls when you can. And you'll really see every team do this uh just because it's the way you can sort of 
to be the aggressor on defense as opposed to being reactive yeah and by contrast a side pick and roll where the guy gets middle is about as screwed as you can be in the the half court because if the guy gets middle number one you know the big has to step up and help then there's nobody to help as the roll man rolls in from the left wing or if he's a a guy who can pop as well or pop to three in the corner then you're really in trouble uh, because there's just nobody who can get over there and help from the weak side you got to go so far to bring help to to that roll man and then you also have the problem of the guy getting middle and now he's much closer to pass to everyone else who's on the weak side every single pass is available to him right very easily and you're in this rotation where you got to get another guy over most likely to the roll man so it's if you're in conventional pick and roll defense if you're not switching a guy getting middle on on a side pick and roll is generally a big big problem for the defense and that's why this coverage evolved to begin with exactly and you know you'll see in the so basically the the sides you know what is a side pick and roll versus what is a middle pick and roll um the slot is pretty much the marker so you take the uh, paint end line and you extend it all the way out to half court so the outer thirds of the court are where generally you ice pick and rolls and in the middle you're in a drop a regular drop because icing a middle pick and roll doesn't really do anything because the ball handler is still in the middle of the floor even if you force them one way or the other now you will see sometimes a team uh what's called weaking a pick and roll where basically they're going to force it to the left the hand the left hand of the ball handler and that way you know his ball's not in his dominant hand um and then you know the other side is you strong it so um, most teams will put say strong is right and weak is left so it's not like when you play james harden then all of a sudden now weak is right and strong is left you know that can get confusing when you're alternating between pick and rolls with guys with different handedness on the same possession so um that's sort of how it's a little fix in the middle but you generally just ice in the outer thirds and when i first saw this coverage emerge you know i think i want to say that it was you know the jeff van gundy knicks who were the first that really brought it into vogue uh tom thibodeau was on that staff of course but i I may be getting the history slightly wrong there but nonetheless it came into vogue and and you you saw a lot more of it as the decades of the 2000s went along and for me i was like well how the hell can't you beat this i mean the whole point of defense is supposed to be stay between your man and the basket and here what you're doing is you're essentially intentionally getting out of the way of the guy that you are guarding to you know yeah you're forcing him to the baseline but you're basically just like giving him a head start and a lane to the basket so why aren't teams more effective in beating that and what are some of the counters that have emerged now because in intuitively i mean i'm not saying that like teams are dumb or something like that but intuitively jumping out of the guy's way so he could just get a lane going right to the basket is not what you want to be doing defensively. right and so that's why it's really important for the big and a nice to be a little bit more aggressive than typically you'll see in a regular pick and roll um sort of shutting down that ability of the of the ball handler to just get to the basket because the gate is sort of being opened uh on that baseline side but the other part of it is also whereas in a drop you're you're often as the on-ball defender you're caught chasing the ball from behind in an ice you're you're next to the ball so even though you're you know the gate has opened in some sense you're still connected physically to the ball handler and one of the most important things in an ice is for the on-ball guy to get into the body of the ball handler that way he doesn't have the freedom kind of like how ryan anderson gets into the body of a a ball handler and a switch right he doesn't have the freedom to just go wherever he wants because someone's on top of him and so that also helps it out and then some of the counters for that um you know there are a couple of them Uh, one of them i wrote or i tweeted about a couple weeks ago but i used to call it an icebreaker which i actually stole from uh columbia university men's basketball i saw them doing it at a a practice when i went um basically the idea is on a pick and pop off of an ice the guy who stunts to the picker to the pick and pop 
pop guy. Uh, he's basically on the nail at that time, and he jumps out at yeah. the pick and well, pop well, guy. Yeah, well, let's slow down here for a little okay. bit too, right? So, <laughs> so you're if you're doing ice coverage, a lot of times what you'll see then is that you know if the guy guarding the uh, or, or I'm sorry, if the screener realizes that the guy guarding the man isn't going to let him use the screen, then he'll flip the angle, right? So he'll set the screen to just at least you know he's not getting middle, but you're at least creating some separation there, and then he'll you know if he's the guy who can pop to three then he'll pop back out you know to kind of the slot area on that same side and that's that causes a problem for the defense because in ice coverage the guy guarding the screener he's got to be back protecting the rim or you're just giving up a layup and so now really you got to either rely on that guy being extremely quick to get out to that guy at the three-point line or you got to bring help over from the weak side which is what you're starting to articulate there exactly so when you bring that help against the pop guy um you're stunting to him and then getting back to your original guy as the helper but the problem is if you're the stunter and the guy you're guarding just cuts through to the basket well now it takes the stunter away because you have to follow that guy and so that's sort of a counter you can do another one is really simple which is ball handler just takes it down to the corner he throws it back out to the pop guy and then he goes and follows his pass into a dribble handoff so now he's coming back middle and so it's really incumbent on the guy who guarded the ball handler to not let him get a clean dribble handoff right off of that Um, and then another one you'll see this one is a little less common but one i like is you throw it back to the popper then the popper quickly swings it on to the other side of the floor and then the popper sets a wide pin down for the guy who was originally the ball hand and so the idea being you're just getting this continuous action ball movement and you're getting the ball back in the middle of the floor but really this is the the battle on offense and defense it's the defense keeping the ball out of the middle and the offense trying to get middle and you know all this stuff really is just that can really just comes down to that yeah another tactic that you'll see too and, and chris paul is a, a master at this is they once the screen is set he can snake it where if he gets right. that pick going to the baseline then he'll just after that will dribble to the free throw line but that's still that's not as good you'd probably rather be in that position as a defense with the guy snaking it than you would in just a conventional side pick and roll because then at least the big is kind of more out of position on his role you know he's not he doesn't have that wide open lane with a head of steam getting to the basket uh right. and so it's a little bit easier to guard it that way but that still can be another counter and it's some point you know then you're going to force the big to step up and prevent that jumper from the free throw line and that opens up a lot of options for you as well as an offense player exactly and you know so it's it's just it's really tough um from a defensive standpoint to just continuously be controlling the things in the way you want to control them because the offense always is going to have a, a reasonable and pretty easy counter to what you're doing so you know a lot of it really just comes down to individual defense can you stay in front once they do once all the fluff goes away yeah and this is why too i mean getting to bring it full circle here we talk about okc right like okay you can execute this one time right you know what's coming we can ice it we can keep this guy on the side of the floor okay but now all of these counters you talked about involve moving the ball usually from side to side or guys moving off the ball giving it up getting it right back and the more times you reverse the ball the more individual attacks you can get pick and rolls isos dribble handoffs the more chances that it causes for the defense to break down and if you're not creating you want to have as many actions in an offensive possession as possible because that's just more chances for the defense to make a mistake yeah and here's the other thing too which is that um, from a coaching perspective the hardest the harder thing to do is to make defensive adjustments on the fly versus making offensive adjustments so when you're in the huddle with you know your players you can just draw on the board a quick play to get around whatever defense they're guarding and you don't have to get into the nitty-gritty of why this is going to work and say hey we're just going to counter this 
by doing this. And the, from a defensive perspective, you, you don't know what the offense is going to necessarily run. So to say, oh, we're going to start guarding this this way. Well, maybe you say that and then they don't guard, they don't run that play for another six minutes. And so by the time it comes into effect, your guys have forgotten what that adjustment was because you said it so long ago and it became irrelevant so quickly. And so most defensive adjustments only happen at halftime versus, you know, in the middle of a game. It can be really hard to make sort of wholesale adjustments other than saying, oh, instead of icing, we're going to drop this or, oh, instead of dropping this, we're going to switch it. Um, and so that can really, really be tough and gives the offense an advantage uh, you're making mid-game adjustments. All right, last thing here. I, I asked you last week for some of your favorite drills. Of course, you, you talked about the shell drill because you're a coach and every coach, that's their favorite drill. Uh, but <laughs> give, give me another one that you really just, you, you think is, uh, whether for individual or for team, that's just one of your personal favorites uh, to have the guys run. So one thing that I really liked we did um, was that, so there's something called 5 on 0 offense where basically you just run your offensive playbook against uh, no defense. The idea being you're just trying to learn the movements of your offense and have it down pat uh, without having to go full contact or full speed or anything. But we used to switch the positions in 5 on 0. So we'd have like our center be the point guard or you know our small forward be the shooting guard or I guess that's not a big difference. But the idea being you're just way out of what your normal comfort zone is in that play because when you're running a play you really only see it from your perspective right and what you know maybe because you're you're tired or this or that you're not going to execute your cut as much but when you see the perspective of another radically different position on the same play it can give you an understanding of how important you making your cut a hard cut even if it's not directly involved in the play is to sort of keep the flow going and allow you know an option to open up and so you know our guys had fun with that too our our fives you know our seven footers coming down the court with the ball and yelling out the play and laughing and whatever but <laughs> i think it's a i think it's a really useful exercise just so guys get the sort of full rounded perspective uh, of of how your offense works yeah i mean the one that maybe that that helps is when the guards like this is one of the ones that kills me is when the guard goes too early before the big has gotten there to set the screen and like causes the big to get an offensive foul like that's Former one where if the guard talking. yeah yeah exactly <laughs> right yeah uh, for, former medium man perhaps uh, more accurately but i was uh i was cast into that role you know it's interesting actually I and mean, this is just uh, me spitballing here and, and i would guess that at the college and professional level guys take it a lot more seriously and get more out of it but i always felt like five on oh to some degree i never thought it was the greatest use of time i think that just even having dummy defense there like not you know playing hard or anything but just all right you know follow these guys around defensively could help with that because otherwise guys just kind of you know you make a move that's not going to be there you'll throw a pass to a guy that wouldn't actually be there in the game and then you know if you wanted to just run it back the other way and have that because you're like oh you know we want to have each team do their five on oh and get the chance but then we just run it back the other way with the same guys just kind of doing dummy defense i think that works a little bit better just to say all right these are the angles that are actually going to be here in the game like this pass you know if we're playing with real defense is not going to be here you know you have to at least pretend to set a screen in this situation and and just gets in your head a little bit more because i think so many times guys just like oh this is the play i'm just gonna run here instead of really being like okay like what do i have to do do i have to set a screen and like you know really hit the guy on this player like you know if i just kind of jog through uh you know i'm not gonna be open there's no point in even doing this cut if i'm just gonna jog through it so that's uh something that occurred to me what do you think of that yeah it's it, that's an interesting way to, to do it we did that a couple times um sometimes we do five on oh into a two possession live scrimmage yeah. or something like 
that. But the one thing, the one drawback to that is sometimes it can be very useful to just watch uh, the other guys run your offense. So ah, okay. you can see you can see the cuts. Maybe you forgot for a second, or so you, you're almost getting reps even if you're not doing it because you're just watching the play. Um, we used to before the season started, we would do five on zero as a coaching staff, and we would all run through the plays at the various positions. So we knew we knew them before we taught it to the guys, and that that was something that you know, was always kind of a little fun. We do like a little practice training camp for the coaches where we'd practice running the drills and practice doing this so on day one we were sharp and we were ready to go and so that you know that that's just another you know another thing to consider though you know that getting those reps in yourself or seeing someone else doing it beforehand can can give you a little added boost but definitely yeah I, I totally agree that sometimes you see guys just you know walking through a play running a play just because coach said run a play not because they're trying to run a play to score and that you know that's you know that's an that's an important thing it's, I know Greg Popovich always says you know we run this play for the team to score not for this player to score right one person is not cutting hard maybe potentially he being an option to score goes away because he was too slow um there was a play i was watching from a couple weeks ago basically um it was a dribble handoff action portland ran and ed davis um was setting a screen for lillard out of the corner and then lillard was coming up to get a dho and ed davis after he set the screen instead of just sprinting to clear out to the weak side just sort of jogged and walked and because he did that um zach collins slipped the screen he was wide open but then he wasn't open because ed davis hadn't gotten out to the weak side fast enough and so it's those little things that you know make a huge difference between baskets and no baskets yeah and another thing that i've noted too between the best teams and to mention okc again in this is when if you're running a play or even if you you know you're trying to improvise how long does it take from when you try to swing the ball from one action to the next right if you run something on the right side of the floor and then you swing it up top and swing it to the other side and there's supposed to be a screen there or a dho does it just like are you waiting three seconds before the guy starts running up or if you're doing a play into a middle pick and roll does he catch the ball and the big hasn't even started running up yet to set the screen or when you throw it to the guy is the big already there and you can just go right into that you know so that having that kind of like bang bang i think that's like what separates some of the best offenses in terms of like you know getting open looks uh and execution definitely and there's a really common play that a bunch of teams run including okc where the one will dribble it uh cross half court on one wing and a big will run up like he's going to set a ball screen for him and then the one quickly swings it across the floor to the two or three and then the the other big sprints out and sets a quick step up ball screen for that guy and that's that's like you said it's a bang bang timing play right the second the ball gets swung across the screen has to be right there so it's surprising the other on ball defender now who's about to be guarding the ball and so you really can see breakdowns because it's just things aren't sharp enough and it makes it look like oh this play doesn't work play does just it's not being executed properly yeah i mean and and on that play too the whole reason it works as well is you fake that first screen and so that big uh, on that one side has got to get up there if you swing the ball and then the next screen doesn't happen quickly that big has more time to get back in in a position all right this has been awesome again per usual uh thanks so much for coming on let people know where they can follow your stuff and i will get you out of here uh so i'm at dylan t murphy on twitter and then my blog the basketball dictionary is at dictionary b-ball all right thanks again for coming on and uh we'll be back uh, on thursday not sure what we're gonna do yet tomorrow we'll have to surprise you but uh you know that's what the episode title is for so you'll see it uh (laughs) as soon as it comes out talk to y'all then so dylan and i actually talked after the show and one thing we're gonna try doing for our patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash duncan larue 
through. Dylan is actually going to do a little film companion to this podcast, that play that we talked about where there's a dummy ball screen on one side of the floor and they reverse it quickly. We're actually going to come up with a few examples of that play for our Patreon subscribers that Dylan is going to narrate through. So go check that out at patreon.com slash Duncan LaRue if you're a subscriber or if you're not a subscriber, subscribe and you can get that. 